0: We're seeing AI surprise us in ways. It does things now that we used to think would require human level general intelligence. It doesn't mean that we have that in AI yet, but we see AI doing things that crack a boundary we thought was a lot further away. And so it prompts us to ask, well, what is this thing and and who are we?
1: Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast where Justin Grammans and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy!
2: Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today on the program, we have Peter Scott. Peter is the author of Crisis of Control, How Artificial Superintelligences May Destroy or Save the Human Race. He holds a Master's of Computer Science from the University of Cambridge and worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for 16 years, but today actually spends his time as an author, futurist, and business coach focusing on assisting clients through exponential change. He has appeared on radio, TV, and podcasts, in addition to giving a TEDx talk. Finally, he has a new book out called Artificial Intelligence and You, What AI Means for Your Life, Your Work, and Your World. So very interested to dive into that a little bit more and talk about those topics, Peter, during this podcast. So thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks, Justin. I love doing this. Thank you for welcoming me. Awesome. I mentioned you working for JPL there. You know, How does somebody working for JPL, I guess that was maybe in the 90s, or early 2000s, or whatever, kind of... Get into artificial intelligence and maybe what have you been doing, you know, since then?
0: I've continued to work for them as a remote contractor since then, but being self-employed means that I've been able to branch out and do these other things, as you see with artificial intelligence, which was really born of the convergence of my work in technology and understanding artificial intelligence. And having children, that prompted me to use the the background that I'd acquired in softer topics, which was sort of a reaction to being a computer programmer all day and becoming a coach, as you mentioned, and doing neuro-linguistic programming. And then realizing that there was a necessary convergence of those two worlds, like CP Snow talked about, that we have to bring those together ultimately for a successful future with artificial intelligence, and that I owed it to my children to do what I could about that, and that I was in a position to actually communicate about that, and so that's what I've
2: been doing. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. You know, I read, you said in one of the quotes as I was kind of looking and researching before having you on, you said, I believe a partnership between the human development and software development fields sort of is the key to our future. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? I thought that was an interesting quote, you know, this, this partnership, human development, software development fields.
0: Well, just look to how AI is being applied and researched right now to see that all over the place. In my podcast, which is also called Artificial Intelligence and you, I've been interviewing lots of people over a huge range of topics that intersect with artificial intelligence. And I've been struck by how many of them, people that combine cognitive science, neuroscience, and machine learning. That seems to be a common pairing of topics at university research and teaching levels. Ditto for philosophy and artificial intelligence. Ditto for ethics and artificial intelligence. 20 years ago, those did not intersect in my world. And here we are seeing psychology and AI being talked about in the same breath by many, many people, lots of applications. There are business-capable and um, monetizable applications right now being used for therapeutic benefit, like a, a therapist that you can talk to at 3 o'clock in the morning when your regular one might not answer the phone. And so many examples of this that we are finding, well, we could talk about why that's happening, but the, the fact that it is happening is just undeniable the moment you start poking at the ways that AI is evolving on the the leading edge right now.
2: Uh, Yeah, let's actually talk about, is there some sort of a convergence you feel that's going on? Like, what are the major shifts that are happening in the technology to to sort of put us in this position today?
0: Sure. Well, I think one of the reasons for this is that AI is evolving at phenomenal speeds, driven by Moore's law, among other things, and infusions of huge amounts of money. Billion dollars will make a big difference, we're seeing AI surprise us in ways. It does things now that we used to think would require human-level general intelligence. It doesn't mean that we have that in AI yet, but we see AI doing things that crack a boundary we thought was a lot further away. And so it prompts us to ask, well, what is this thing and and who are we in that respect? Why do we not understand this thing called intelligence or consciousness or even sentience as much as we thought? And what is it? And suddenly those questions seem a lot more important. It's funny how you can be an AI developer and you're trying to get a machine learning model to work and it's misclassifying cats. So your reaction to some of this existential type dialogue is that's overblown. But increasingly, a lot of Serious researchers and prominent people central to the field of AI development are saying, we're we're heading in this direction that we need to explore further. And it's generating issues right now, obviously, with uh, ethics and questions
2: of bias and so forth that are uh, immediate. As you start thinking about intelligence, then it, it feels like now we're putting on a lot of our philosophical hats, right? And maybe is it causing us to sort of step back and say, well what does it really mean for us to be intelligent as a race and how are we really any different from all these machines? Yes, that comes up a lot because
0: we don't have a definition of intelligence that is adequate to perhaps measure where AI is. It's fine for putting a number to human beings, although it's hard for the people who actually have to do that to develop those instruments. But when it comes to looking at AI and and saying, where is it on that scale? that's different it's clearly a lot spikier compared to us we are measuring general intelligence in human beings but in artificial intelligence we have narrow intelligence that sometimes looks like general intelligence i mean I'm, we're talking around this but specific examples of what the large language models are doing right now creating conversation answering general questions creating these uh, amazing images to prompts that stunned me in how consistent they were for their realism.
2: Yeah, you know, you got me thinking about just, yeah, this whole idea of generative art. And that seems to be a really a hot topic these days. I think we've had natural language processing, we've had computer vision, kind of, you know, text to speech, speech to text. We've had some of these other things. But I think what's really hitting me, I think, over the past couple months is, is you know, now we're generating all sorts of poems, we're generating music, we're generating artwork. What do you think about that, I guess? You know, have we sort of crossed into this new th- new threshold? Are things different now these days because of this? Or Well, it provokes
0: very heated conversations about creativity and what we thought that was, because for humans to do this kind of thing, it requires something that we often characterize as a moment of divine inspiration communing with something higher than ourselves to come up with something that moves us the way that Beethoven, Mozart, and Van Gogh do. Now we can train large language models to do what they do or did and produce things that evoke the same effect. And that makes people angry because it did not stem from a human being being so transcendent of the human condition to do that. Well, there's all kinds of philosophical conversations about that. But now we can get into, well, where's the utility of creative works? Sometimes we experience them in and of themselves for what they are. So you go and attend a concert, you go to an art exhibition, and then you want to know something about the composer, you want to know something about the artist. If it's an AI, that's going to color your interpretation of that. But if you're watching a movie and there's music behind it, that music Mm. is going to shape the way you react to that movie, but you do not have those questions. And AI could easily generate that music and probably figure out the emotional beats that it needed to meet in, in order to, to, to generate that as well, which has obvious implications for people that do that kind of work for a living.
2: Yeah, no, that was gonna, that's great. You're, you're kind of touching on the next thing that I was going to maybe ask about because with regards to you writing and publishing these books and you, you're doing TEDx talks and stuff like that, the other thing you do a lot with is consult, right? You consult with businesses mm-hmm. and sort of coach them on how they can be relevant here with this new technology. What are, what are some things you're talking to businesses today about related to artificial intelligence? Well, we're living in
0: a world where there's some fragility to our psychology these days for being under assault so much from change that we don't understand is propelling us into the unknown. And so we feel fragile in in that respect. And businesses can feel fragile if their people think, what's the chance of my job going away or being automated? What's the chance of this industry being superseded? So the people in charge of those businesses need to understand what they can do about that. How is the ecology that they're in evolving the, the likelihood of there being some sort of existential upset in their, their sector? What does AI mean and what can it really do and not do over what sort of time frames in their business? And then what do they need to do to allay the fears of their people to understand how they, they live? Where should they be looking to use AI and where should they be looking to use their human capital? What sort of things are under threat there, or which uh, can be really hard, as, as you know, to understand where AI is, is really leverageable and where humans have the edge and the way we should capitalize on that. So it's about giving people ultimately agency to counteract that feeling of encroaching helplessness, of going into an unknown that where we don't know by definition what's happening, but that's also true of the people that are taking us there, right? The people that are driving these high technology companies, they they have a sense of what they want to do with the technology, but an exciting day is when it surprises them. The difference is that they're in charge. They're the ones driving the car. And the people who feel like they're not driving the car, that they're passengers in the back, are the ones that have the most fear here. I like to say that Exploration is when you visit the unknown. Disruption is when the unknown visits you. The big difference is agency. How do you feel about that? So a lot of what I do is about helping people feel a sense of agency, like they have some control, some way to bend the needle, some understanding of where this car is going.
2: Yeah, and I guess you talk about how people can utilize capital or how businesses can utilize capital appropriately. What's the advice you're giving to companies based on certain skill sets, based on certain job titles, roles?
0: Depends upon the the sector. So if you've got someone that's a traditional product maker, for instance, something like detergent, obvious example, or there's a supermarket chain, then AI is something that's leveraged at scale by people that have a lot of data. So if you're competitor is Walmart you're in trouble uh, if you don't have as much data as they do because they can afford to develop one piece of AI that scales across their entire enterprise to leverage all that data so you have to find where can you develop a large body of data that is unique within your industry if you can't then you may want to look for an exit plan maybe your most valuable asset is your real estate then there's a traditional service industry like insurance. Now, the actions of people like adjusters can be replaced by AI. There are insurers where someone can take pictures of their car damaged through the phone, and an AI assesses it and adjudicates the claim on the spot. Think of who that's replacing in traditional businesses right now. But those people are very experienced at dealing with humans uh, as relationships. That's useful. They have internalized and, and learned a customer relationship, put them in roles where that matters, where that continues, and, and you can develop that. That's useful capital. Looking at a car and figuring out how big is that ding? No, uh, not any longer. And then we have disruptive ones. You might have a disruptive product, sort of think iPhone, that sort of thing. And your best asset is the creative thinking that came up with that because you've got some understanding of markets and people and what will people use that they don't think they need or don't know that they need. And that understanding there applied to the creative thinking is useful. You can use AI in your development manufacturing but you've already got the best human capital. And then you can have, a, obviously, if complete the quadrant, you can have disruptive services going back away to things like search engine optimization. Right now, I guess a disruptive service, hot off the press, would be a large language model prompt generation. you think people selling their service and constructing the prompts to get the best kind of image out of large language model if someone says, I want a picture of it. You know, a a dog juggling watermelons on a unicycle and they can do that. So it's, you know, there's no competition from anyone else or AI. So you want to leverage your first mover advantage. And probably in this case, you're actually using AI to do it. Just like Uber, uh, Airbnb were disruptive services that did that to disrupt service industries where they disrupted uh, lodging without owning any property on transportation without owning any vehicles.
2: Sure. Well, and it I was interesting, you started by saying it's all about the data, right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's really sort of the linchpin in all of this is, is making sure that whatever, well, I guess you're not intelligent unless you actually have some data to run things off of. So it, it kind of all starts <laughs> there.
0: Well, AI isn't intelligent without data. Humans can infer things from much less data and that's Leverage. So if you can find applications where they depend upon humans inferring conclusions from limited data, AI does not know how to deal with that at the moment. It needs hundreds of thousands, preferably millions of data points. But when it's got that, then it will do better. That's
2: interesting. You're right. Yeah. So if you're running an industry or you don't have a whole lot of data, but you, you can infer things like you were saying with regards to customer service. The more human side, the more human touch side of things, And my mind, so I've shared this on the program before, but my dad was a physician for, you know, 40, 40 50 years or so. And so I always kind of like to joke with him, you know, hey, look at all these AIs now that are replacing your job. And he always tells me, well, but they don't have the human touch, right? They, they don't have like the sympathy and the empathy that, that somebody can, can have as a doctor to treat them to truly treat them, right? Yes, an AI can go ahead and find cancer faster than I, but that's not what the whole game is.
0: Right. And and so we need to use it appropriately. Yeah.
2: You know, I was thinking about artificial general intelligence, right? And I, I just did another thing I was thinking about is like, what's your perspective on that? Are, are we are we getting close to reaching that? Do we ever think we're gonna reach that? Like what what does intelligence look like to you, AI look like to you in five, 10, 15 years?
0: Wow. Uh <laughs> oh, thanks for the easy one. Yes. You know Artificial general intelligence is an unknown distance off. And so there's a lot of people thinking, okay, maybe that's five years. Let's pour a few billion dollars into this. And so there's incredible amounts of money being sunk into many projects to develop artificial general intelligence where something could be as smart as a human of of any level, frankly. If it was a five-year-old, that would be enough because we know how to teach a five-year-old and you could do that with an AI. The consequences of having that in a computer are just clear. I mean, to someone who's already in the news, Vladimir Putin said, whoever figures this out will rule the world. Obviously, he's got a sort of mindset that leads to that sort of conclusion. So the big question boils down to when. If that were soon, well, great. But even, I think, John McCarthy said way back, this could be five years, it could be 500. And we still don't know. But we are finding that we managed to do things that we thought would require artificial general intelligence without it. Just like when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov for chess and became a champion, Douglas Hofstadter said, My God, I used to think that playing chess required thinking. Now I realize it doesn't, which meant he said (laughs) after that, Yes, it does require advanced thinking for a human, but not for an AI. So, We see a microcosm of this dilemma in self-driving vehicles right now. How many billions of dollars have been spent on those over the last eight years? We still don't have the level five that we have been led to expect was imminent. And it looks further away than ever at this point, as though that really does hinge upon having general intelligence. And if it does, then it is probably more than five years away. So we could see some sort of... I mean, I have kept thinking that when the other shoe drops with that, we will see an AI winter. Everyone I've asked about this says no. We'll see.
2: Yeah, you you were talking about the self-driving car. I just You probably saw on the news the Tesla robot that Mm -hmm. uh, they released last week or so, which I think was not very impressive in a lot of ways, in my opinion.
1: Mm.
0: Well, I thought it was impressive... In how light it was, I mean, it's more visually appealing than Boston Dynamics, which is threatening.
2: Yeah, 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 it is. I, I, that reminded me to go back and watch the thing that they did, and they were like running, it was running around a curve, and it was doing yeah. a flip off a table and stuff like that. But you're right, it did actually felt like I was out of like an episode of Black Mirror, you know, the, the, the show but the Tesla robot it seemed like it needed it did it, it was kind of walking very gingerly it didn't seem like it it was very early prototype you know but you know and again not to not to knock them too much it's a hard problem to solve like you're saying it was these things probably a couple of years ago people were saying oh these robots are going to be walking around and they're going to be all over us and everything within the next you know within the next you know 3 to 5 to 10 years and it's like i don't know it still feels like it's a ways off in my opinion
0: it's a problem to solve that is I can't count how many orders of magnitude harder than driving a car. And if we can't drive a car, the idea that this robot is going to be able to do things that are are useful, I don't know how to quantify the likelihood of that. One of the things that I thought was notable was that they didn't say what you would use this for. They showed it being used to carry packages around an office and water plants. Now, granted, it's early days and fine, but. You haven't told us anything about what it might do in the future. Even last year, when they had a human on stage, all it did was breakdance.
2: Right, right. So where's the? And there needs to be some sort of business value in probably any one of these propositions. For I think for entrepreneurs and other businesses to jump in and start developing the technology, probably it's usually usually not done for the sake of fun. I guess I'm just trying to think: like, Mm. would somebody actually go through this and and develop it to somebody that could breakdance and just sort of leave it there? I feel like it would just sort of die out.
0: I think that they've got to give us the application. I mean, my go-to example is a a plumber replacing the peat trap under your sink. You get something that can do that, then you've got a useful application. That's really, really hard. And to get a robot to do it, the number of different problems you have to solve, and, and the fact that no one has suggested that these might be able to do that says, well, then what are
2: you going to use them for? Give us some idea. Yep, for sure. For sure. Well, you know, how do people kind of get into this field? It's one of the questions I like to ask people that are on the show, because they usually have sort of have spent a number of years thinking about artificial intelligence or even applying it. You know, if if I was an up and coming college student, for example, or just starting this field, like how how do you suggest people get into this?
0: You know, I've asked a lot of guests that myself and It's fascinating because I go really broad on the podcast. So I've talked to philosophers and CTOs and computer scientists and teachers and ethicists and anthropologists. And wherever you are, there's vector to being involved in AI. It's kind of like Kevin Kelly of Wired said, once the next 10,000 startups, the model is going to be take X and add AI. Well, (laughs) whatever you're in... There's an intersection of AI with that. For instance, microbiology. And take the example of AlphaFold having decoded all 200 million known proteins into their structures recently. The number that we had before that was 190,000, obtained at great expense. And then went and did the rest, essentially overnight, essentially for free. Now, there is no way that that doesn't create entire new industries. I don't know what they are, but you can't increase the size of human knowledge in some space by a factor of a thousand and not expect that to happen. It's got to, and that's in some areas of of medicine, and there's that alone. So you could be in psychology and you could be looking at how AI can understand and help psychologists. You could be in literature and you could be looking at how AI can find connections between Authors and works that you didn't think about before, or it, you could be using it to uh, help with your writing prompts. You could be in sports and it could be analyzing competition or how to be more effective. Give any field, and I can show direct, useful, monetizable connections with AI.
2: Yeah, well, that's the beauty of it. You know, that is the absolute beauty that I that kind of got me into this whole space is, is you're right, it, it can actually be used everywhere. I've even heard people that have been on the program said, you know, it's even as a software engineer. If you're going to be doing software engineering, which is kind of my bread and butter, that's that's what I came up through. That he's like, you're going to be expected to understand this technology, in, in, in no matter what you're doing going forward, it's going to be a piece of what you do. Something to consider.
0: And if you're a kindergartner, uh, I mean, in Finland they teach AI well, now starting from grade one. I don't really? know what that curriculum looks like, but sure. I I know how I would do it. In China, they do it from, from kindergarten. So you could be a teacher and there's another intersection with AI. And it's important to understand these tools in the same way that you need to know how to drive a car, operate a computer. Then we should be teaching people, we should be teaching our children, here's how to use AI. By the time they leave school, it'll be a different kind of AI. But in the same way, it's useful to know how to use Google. Now, to search for things, it's useful to know how to use artificial intelligence to get answers.
2: Well, how do you, this is another question I like to ask, because it's so broad and huge, like, you know, how, how do you define artificial intelligence? Do you have a sentence or two description that you typically use, or?
0: If you look at the technical one that computer science uses, I don't think it's useful to the majority of people. You know, it, it's about software that learns. Even then, that's probably more of a subset. That's machine learning. I say that what's useful to most people is artificial intelligence being something that can do something a human could do, but couldn't really write down the steps for, couldn't describe. Now, that's a subset of what artificial intelligence really is. But I think it's the one that means most to people who are not in the field. To think about AI doing things that, that we know how to do, but we can't describe because it illuminates this paradigm shift away from the old adage that computers can only do what they're programmed to do which is no longer true because if that were the case computers couldn't recognize faces because you can't tell how you recognize faces and we still don't know really how computers are doing it we just know that we can train them to do it and that's <laughs> enough
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's definitely true. You're right. The, the traditional programming is, you know, basically there's there's inputs that are put in, and there's some logic that happens, and outputs happen. And kind of the sort of what machine learning and stuff talks about is just it's the other way around. It's the data that's put in, and the output mm-hmm. is the logic. And you're right. There's a lot of sort of black box stuff going on with regards to. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Google Photos will recognize faces of kids that are you know 15 years later. Right. They're they're a toddler, and then 15 years later it knows, it can pick it out. Yep, that is Jimmy. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, they can do that. And you're okay. right. No one could possibly program the logic, the if-then-else statements to make that happen. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, but, but, but you're right. You're right. We, we know that it works on a lot of different scales and some of it is a little, bit of a, a little bit of a black box. And I think maybe that's why we start getting into this philosophical question of, well, now does this hmm. thing have consciousness or not, right? Is it doing things that that a conscious being would do, and there's a whole rabbit hole there, you know. Again, I mean, you, right. you and I have talked to people that can pretty much talk about for hours about about those types of things. And I think it's, I th- and I think it's needed. I, I think you know this is the whole ethics, you know, the whole ethics of of artificial intelligence. Are you are you talking to companies a little bit about about you know the AI that they use, if it's you know if it's if it's being used responsibly or not? Are, are companies even thinking about this?
0: Oh, they're thinking about it a lot. There's an entire sub industry now about providing AI ethics services to companies who want to ensure that they are using it ethically and responsibly and, and to know how to do that. So there are people whose business model is providing that service.
2: Yeah, well, cool. Yeah, I think I, I talked to a guest recently and, and I just kind of said off handily, well, we kind of got to get this right here the first time. And she had agreed. She's like, yeah, that's, that's the whole thing that, that we're trying to really push is, is, If you're using bad data and you're training bad algorithms, there's going to be bad outcomes.
0: Sure. AI will let you make the same mistakes, only faster and at scale. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, so your book, Artificial Intelligence and You, What AI Means for Your Life, Your Work, and Your World, where where can people pick that up?
0: Amazon. If you want to get it from a bookstore, they can order it from the Ingram catalog. That will probably take a little bit longer. But every country, it's got Amazon. Then nice. you can get it there.
2: What was the What was your process? I haven't written a book. It's kind of on my bucket list, though. I, th- I really think I'd like to at some point. But I always kind of like to ask people who are published authors, like, was it Was it hard? Was how long did it take? Is it something you're going to do again? I mean, obviously, this is book number yeah. two for you, so you've already done it again. But yeah,
0: and and there were other books on other topics before that, but. I, I need enough time after writing a book for the amnesia to set in to think <laughs> okay. about writing another one because it's kinda like well, analogy might be for women giving birth who ask one while she's in the process of doing that. Hey, do you have, what do you think about doing another one? She will like break something. Yeah. Um a little while later it seems like a good idea. And so with a a book, it's much the same way because the process of creating one is the of exponentially rising work. And initially thinking, you know what, I think I can do this in just like a couple hours a week or maybe an hour a day, just let's do a little steady work here and it will just sort of emerge gradually. And there may be some books that come out that way, not mine. And so eventually it took setting a deadline and then it turned into a whole lot of work. So that just ramped up and up and up. That happens when you get to the point where you have a commitment to someone to have a result by a particular time. And maybe that's an editor, maybe that's reviewers, maybe it's something else.
2: Gotcha. Well, is it safe to say the next book, which I would say when you do it, not if you do it, I I think as you've been writing, I think you'll do another one, would still be in artificial intelligence or are you dabbling in some other areas now as well?
0: I've not imagined being another area than AI at the moment because it covers all of them. Sure. it's unlikely, but I just don't know what the angle the next book on AI might take. Gotcha, gotcha.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I started this podcast because I really like applications of artificial intelligence and, and really having conversations. So conversations on applied AI just sort of fit. You're right. It is such a broad topic and it's been so fun for me just to interview people like yourselves and others that are doing just some really really, really good thinking and working in the space and and opening up businesses' eyes with regards to how they can use the technology. Is there, you know, are there other things that I maybe missed that we haven't really covered that you wanted to talk about specifically?
0: Well, I think one thread worth picking up on was when we were talking about, you mentioned how the Google Images can recognize someone 15 years later, and then we're talking about are these things conscious. And one way to sort of prick that balloon is to look at how the image recognition can be fooled or even to ask it to identify the areas of an image where it's inferring most of its data from and find that it can be looking at a picture of a dog and yet its biggest cue comes from somewhere that's not even part of the dog. It's not even learned that and that we can add noise or what looks to us like noise to an image and the AI goes from thinking something is a poodle to think it's an ostrich. With much greater confidence, we can game it that way. It's not thinking about these things the way that we do, despite the fact that we can look in the network and identify things that are that are doing like parts of our neural network, our optical cortex does, where they've recognized diagonal lines and certain features. It's just not processing the same way. So we can achieve the the same results, and we can achieve results that humans can't do, like you gave the example, but they are, in many respects, fragile. You can train an AI to play Breakout, you know, the game, Pong, or, you know, many video games, but you then move the paddle a few pixels, a difference that's imperceptible to a human, makes no difference to their play, but it, now the AI is stuck. It has to train all over again. It's that fragile.
2: Yes. Yes, you're right. You're right, and that's. I guess that goes to the point of we're in this this narrow AI space, right? I mean, ultra narrow. It's one thing to be like, okay, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna train things that can see images and train things that can listen to music, and they're totally different, you know, sets. And I I do know you can do some transfer learning, right, and get get that. But you're right. If things go kind of off the rails a little bit for a lot of these AI models, they don't really know what to do. They can't really adjust. Very very narrow versus general.
0: Yeah. When we when we see changes in in that, I think it will be the the first indications that we're on a, a road that leads to a artificial general intelligence.
2: And how do you think we're going to accomplish that? Or is that just remains to be seen?
0: I don't know. That's way out on the bleeding edge. Uh, I mean, Jeff Hinton talks about things called capsule networks that may be robust to re- with respect to things like transformational changes, rotations and things in images, but I, I do not know where that research is.
2: Crazy, crazy, yeah. And I, I wonder if it borders back into organic. I mean, so my head started going. Well, maybe you got to get away from machines, and you got to get back into organic chemistry and 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 humans <laughs> and biology again to make this happen.
0: Which is why so many people, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I find working in neuroscience and AI trying to find that crossover. They say, well, we know this now about the human brain. We're learning all of these things about what's inside there. Can we do that in a machine? Yeah, for sure. Well, how do people reach out to you, Peter? Find you on on LinkedIn? Is that the best place? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn and you can also go to humancusp.com and H-U-M-A-N-C-U-S-P.com. Links to the books and the podcast there.
2: Excellent. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been a, a true treat. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge with our community. And I thought we had a really good conversation. So I look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future. And I guess together we'll sort of explore this area and see what comes here in in the coming years. Oh, thanks, Justin. Loved every moment of it.
1: You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at appliedai.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to justin at appliedai.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.